Hi. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about some bonus content from Spotlight On. Head over to spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog to read my interview with Mohamed Zotari. Mo is an oud performer and composer originally from Aleppo, Syria, and he's currently based in Bucharest, Romania. Mo creates contemporary music that's steeped in tradition, but not held captive by it. Please drop by our website and have a read. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on Lem Oppenheimer, co-founder of Easy Star Records, an independent record label specializing in pushing and expanding the boundaries of reggae music. Founded in mid-90s New York City, Easy Star focused on raising the bar for U.S. reggae music, but they soon expanded to uncovering and highlighting great artists from regional scenes around the world. Their in-house band, the Easy Star All-Stars, are a touring and recording outfit that's played on some of the label's most renowned releases, including reggae reimaginings of seminal rock albums like 2003's Dub Side of the Moon, 2006's Radio Dread, which covers Radiohead's OK Computer, and now their upcoming release, Ziggy Stardub, which is, you guessed it, a front-to-back reggae-style retelling of David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars with features from Steel Pulse, Maxi Priest, and Carlton Livingston. There's even guitar work from Alex Lifeson of Rush and Vernon Reed of Living Color. Ziggy Startup is out on April 21st, 2023, and can be pre-ordered today from EasyStar.com or wherever you get your music. Enjoy our talk. Man, good to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah, it's been a minute, man. A, a couple of things that emphasized what a minute it's been. One was just reconnecting and talking to you over an email and putting in context like when I first started talking to you and when I first started to become aware of the label. But then as I started doing the prep for the call and uh, the longevity of the label, some of the digits in the founding years of the label really. Yeah. Yeah, we're, I think we're at 26 years, but it's always a little fuzzy as to what we count as the start, because do you start it when you got your first music out? We spent a year and a half trying to figure out what it meant to start a label before we even got anything out. Like really it began in, in 1995, but we didn't have music out. We had our first single, I think in 97 was when we finally put a 45 out. Well, I want to ask you about those two years, but I, I like to rewind a little bit and just get a little bit of the the Lem origin story. I grew up in New York City. I was a music geek. I was that kid that had the Rolling Stone record guide by the toilet. So I would read and it would be like, oh, I better check out the Modern Lovers sometime because that got four stars. What's that? Growing up in New York, surrounded by just such a vibrant music scene, you know, being aware of things like CBGBs or I still remember across the street when it was like right across the street from where I lived is where Sid Vicious died. Like I remember all the kids running around like it just whether it was just walking into a bodega and hearing salsa that was it that now I look back and go, oh, I didn't realize that was a revolutionary cutting edge time for Fania label in the 70s or, what you know, things like that, that were just around. And I tried, I never could learn an instrument. I wrote lyrics and screamed in a metal band in college and kind of did stuff with friends, but had that realization that I did not have the talent to be an artist. And I can remember the thinking, okay, but I really know things about music. I know this stuff. I can tell when something is good or not, at least in my mind. What does that mean? Like, is there something I can be doing? And that sort of led down the path to eventually doing this label and being able to really help creatives do their best work and to help get this record out. And to, for me to find creativity in those things, even though it's not necessarily the actual creative act itself. 
that the creation of music is, whether it's giving notes, thinking about sequence of a record, whether it's artwork for a record, commissioning things, doing all those things, just still scratch the itch that I always had on the creative end. Yeah, I think that's something that I recognize in you as a bit of a kindred spirit. Like, you know, I similar background, grew up with music all around me, loving music, being that kid that explored everything that the liner notes mentioned and all, you know, all yeah. that, that music nerd stuff. And was fortunate enough to be exposed to like piano lessons and things like that. I played in bands in high school and just after, but I always, I wasn't that kid that was talented. You know, I struggled just to like suck on my instrument, especially as you get to be a little bit older and you're playing with people, like they can pick up anything and make a sound with it. And you're like, oh, that's not me. <laughs> well, I, I think there's also, there's that curse of someone who is talented, but not really that talented because in that case, they kind of, may end up just dragging it on too long and have that kind of, you know, that the cliche of the dad in the bar band at age 50 or whatever, who's playing along and never quite made it and is disgruntled about it. It was a blessing in disguise to, uh, to not have that much talent when it came to actually making music or playing an instrument. Yeah, you had just so little talent that it kept you real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what did you do in, what was college for you? I just want to bridge that gap. College was great. I went to Oberlin in Ohio, which besides being a really progressive school, small school, it was a place where we really made our own scene. It was a tiny town. There was the Conservatory of Music there. So it was very steeped in traditional and classical music and jazz, things like that. So we really rebelled. And when we were in the college, we were kind of rebelling against that in a lot of ways. And when I was there, it was basically house parties each weekend and it would be three or five bands just taking turns playing some of the people out of that scene john mcintyre who's from tortoise and the sea and cake and one of the great producers of our generation i think i think his his work with stereo lab is some of the finest that that have come across the yeah yeah yeahs were there right after i was this was early 90s so it was definitely grunge just hitting a lot of really heavy, sludgy, distorted type of music and stuff, which was great. It was definitely a place where you could experiment artistically, you could experiment lifestyle-wise. It was very freeing. And because you were kind of in the middle of nowhere, and especially with the lake effect, spending much of your time with gray skies and snowed in and whatnot, you tended to get creative and do interesting stuff. My band Thymaster, we were known as the heaviest band on the loudest band on campus. <laughs> That's something. We would go and rehearse with huge stacks of amplifiers in a tiny little closet. I'm starting to notice the ear decay happening finally from years of that sort of behavior. It was a good time, definitely. And after that's when I came back to New York City and ended up moving in with one of the co-founders of Easy Star, who was a huge reggae fan. And I was always into reggae and aware of it because my older brother, he introduced me to, you know, I was listening to Steel Pulse and Bob Marley and a lot of great stuff in the late 70s when I was eight or nine. But it wasn't until getting back there and having access to, you know, living with someone who had such an extensive collection and being like, oh, what's next? What's next? And I went on such a deep dive for that period. That's kind of when we started the label. As a listener, I've listened to such a broad range. And in some ways, I don't even listen to reggae all that much anymore because when it's your day job and you're listening nonstop to the music you're putting out and the demos, you start cleansing yourself with other things. But at that time, getting back to New York in 93, and there were a lot of good shows, and it was just a deep dive for me at that point. What's been interesting with the label is that, you know, we all listen to different things and we put out some of our bands have done non-reggae releases that we've been involved with. We've worked on other things as project managers or outside of the label. But there's that moment where we've, we've specialized for so long that it's kind of like we've created the lane that we're in. And in some ways you're trapped by your expertise. Like we, we'd be ready to shift out and do other things. And I think we have good ears for it. We know what we're doing. But at the same time, we're really good at what we do. We love the music we're putting out. So we sort of 
end up still in this this lane as long as we have. If there's one thing you guys have done, first of all, just the longevity, just surviving, and especially in that era, is a is an accomplishment, right? Like the transition to digital, then to streaming, and like yes, incredible. and and we've you know, and I can remember each of those things making choices or trying to figure out what we were going to do. And knock on wood, so far, each of the adaptations that we did panned out and we made good choices that work. And that's really a testament to the four of us, me and my three partners, kind of just the process of how we try to think of things and talk through stuff. It still resonates my partner, Eric, when digital was really starting to happen. He said it then and he said it when streaming was starting to happen. It's the, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. He's like, we need to adapt. You can complain all you want about with streaming, how you're not, we're not seeing the revenue we used to see. And if only 500 of these people that are streaming went and bought a record, we'd be, you know, like the record would make money, but you can't. And I get that as a user of streaming services, as a music listener, what's not to like? Is physical a component of every one of your releases even to this day? Not every one, but most of, at this point, most everything that's a full length, we're definitely doing vinyl on. We have recently stopped in some cases doing CDs. The Ziggy Startup record, we're still doing, we printed it a lot of CDs, partly because our distributors definitely felt like with the Bowie connection, it sort of ties in a little bit more to the rock audience who do still buy more CDs. We're doing so many singles at times now, that ends up often just being digital as it goes. But when it's a full length, often we're wanting to definitely get something at least vinyl out there. Have you been sucked into the uh, the cassette renaissance yet? I, I don't get that at all, I have to say. It's like we were so ready to be done with cassettes when, you know, when it transitioned. Who wants to be rewinding and who wants to be like fixing broken cassettes and using your pen to, to wind it and all that stuff? No, no, it just, it's not my favorite. I have some fond memories of my Sony Walkman 2 or whatever I had that, in the black leather case when it was like that large. Don't get me wrong. There are mixtapes that are great that are, that I still hold on to, but I retired my tape deck the other day. Like I pulled back and we just recently moved and I got my stereo set up and I couldn't quite fit the tape deck. And I was like, I really only, I've got one box of some like Grateful Dead bootlegs, which are probably Dick's picks already by this point. So I was, you know, I was like, I'll pull it out if I have to pull it out. It's a sad day to admit that. It's interesting. I, I won't rabbit hole too deeply on it, but I've talked to people inside and outside the industry about it. And it's really interesting how a lot of people outside of the industry, and I'm sure it's mostly focused on our generation, there is a weird fondness for the cassette. I hear people say things like the, how, how freeing, like the freedom of the cassette, like they could put it in their car, they could take it on road trips. Somebody going off to college, getting on a bus, they could, they had their cassettes. It's like, it's a weird nostalgia. I remember going to college with my cassettes and it took up too much room. If you have a phone, you can tap into all your music, you know? So I don't get it. Yeah, you can have the debate about digital versus vinyl, but you can't have a debate about digital versus cassette. I'm sorry. No, and, and I don't exactly the, oh my God, the warp feeling like when you find a cassette that's been sitting in that car dashboard during a summer and then it's it never sounds the same as yeah. it goes i remember the day it was about 20 years ago now i remember putting an ad on craigslist i had 10 of those 100 cassette holders those wood things with all my grateful dead tapes in them and i put them on craigslist and i was like the first hippie who responds and will come get them can have them you, <laughs> you got to cart it away yourself that's right um, yeah. I, I mean you know there's no eight track resurgence there's no nostalgia for the reel to reel my uncle had one of those like we've improved we've moved past it yeah, so yeah the vinyl makes sense to me because that that has a specific sound and there's nothing like that package the feel of that in your hand is just unique and thrilling and this with the size of the art etc so i get the resurgence in that and happy to see that happening well, and to tie it into Easy Star, I think like vinyl and reggae are so hard to disentangle. Yes, I think that's true. I was going to say, it seems like for a period, most music in my mind is tied in. Most anything in the 70s or looking through classic Stones or Zeppelin albums or whatever. But you're right that the seven inch culture and so much of reggae is tied in with 
evolutions that had to do with the physical product at times and how music was delivered. That's often what's fascinating about Jamaican music. The changes that have happened over the years have been for reasons and have led to whole different genres within this thing. And then in, in many ways have influenced and created other genres outside of it. Hip hop, electronica, you know, the idea of the remix really comes from Jamaican culture. So there's so much that has come from this. And, you know, a lot of it is traced back to the economics of trying to make vinyl in, in a tiny island nation. I think I want to come back to some of those elements. But the other thing I wanted to say in regards to Easy Star, and you were talking about some of the other types of music or said differently, there, there's a big tent idea in reggae and Jamaican music that I feel like is real. It's a story that's told pretty well if you go through your discography. Like, right. I think in a lot of the ways the label talks about itself, you guys use the word progressive. That's the word we often settle on because it, to me, that means taking something at its heart, using it as a foundation and valuing it, but not being afraid to take it in new directions and not being afraid, not being slave to purism when it comes to recreating. And when we were starting the label, we often say that the U.S. reggae scene, we didn't particularly like the U.S. reggae scene for years in the 90s because so there were so few original acts. Everything was typically a regional, like kind of a cover band or just trying to sound like Bob Marley or Burning Spear and trying to recreate that and trying to pretend like you were a true Rasta man or something without fully understanding it. Or even if you were understanding it, having an appropriation feel to it in some ways. As with any genre, you have a lot of potential for cliche, a lot of potential for uninteresting things to be done. We definitely wanted to not fall into that trap and to create new vibrant music that took the elements that we loved from the past without just getting stuck in that way. And I think there was kind of a wave that started to happen around the time of us doing that. And a few other bands, I often credit John Brown's body out of Boston and Ithaca as one that really pushed the boundaries where bands, younger artists started using reggae as a medium, but would use it to talk about their lives and what mattered to them and what they saw around them, as opposed to saying, what would Bob Marley write? And it's important because Bob Marley is a perfect example where he was obsessed with what made a hit, whether in R&B and in pop. He was interested in what made successful music, which is why he was so open when Chris Blackwell took him to, you know, that more rock tradition of the way that his songs were arranged in the early 70s and mid 70s. By the time he was doing uprising he was really paying attention to what the commodores were doing or what you know reggae itself really began because they were trying to recreate they could pick up on the radio r&b and jazz out of new orleans and it was trying to play that and and kind of in its own rhythm that came intrinsically from jamaica so there is that whole history of it but in the jamaican hands it's taking that source material and putting your own stamp on it. And now I think finally bands outside of Jamaica and there's pockets in the U.S., the U.K., New Zealand, Australia, all over a lot of the Europeans. They're able to now take that source material and go somewhere with it and make interesting music. And so that's really what's been our driving force and why we have such a kind of global lineup of acts. And for us, we've always, you know, when we started, because we weren't, you know, we were New Yorkers. So we were very exposed to the West Indian diaspora. It was huge in New York. And so we would get to see a lot of the great Jamaican artists coming in and doing shows. We had a very vibrant ska scene in the late 80s that a lot of us were part of. We definitely were more into Jamaican facing reggae. And it took a while for us to be able to hear a U.S artist 
singing reggae without being like, oh, it doesn't sound right or something like that. And of course, now we've moved way past that. But we still have a lot of great Jamaican artists and have always really stuck to trying to develop great talent coming out of there. Because to us, no matter how much it disseminates into other cultures, into the rest of the world, that source has got to be strong and vibrant and cultivated because otherwise it's going to lose the original, you know, you're losing that, that core right there. In this day and age, either in Jamaican reggae or in reggae of other regions, is it a required ingredient that reggae have an element of liberation or struggle? Like does, the, does the lyrical content, is it important in reggae? Or have we moved past that as a, in that progressivism? I think it's much more wide open. I think some of the most powerful still comes from that approach. But I think there's also much more room for smaller, more personal storytelling, more inner looking things. We get caught up, I think, a lot on that aspect of, you know, on the liberation end. But so much of what I love is really also more about separation. It's more telling real tales of what's happening what was happening in Kingston or in Jamaica at that time, not necessarily in a we shall overcome sort of anthemic way, but much more in a, hey, we're suffering right now. There's political violence going on. People are getting killed and more with an eye on reality. It's more as Shabaranks would say, it's about reality. That often leads to that more liberation sort of lyric but it doesn't necessarily need to. It can be just as powerful in capturing something minute, the way a like William Carlos Williams poem can be so whittled down to a couple words and one image that plants its seed in your head and you start seeing bigger picture out of that. Obviously, we can't do like 26, 27 years dissection of every every release. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about that body of work that really is the pretense for our conversation leading up to the Stardub album. Well, before I make any assumptions, before Dub Side of the Moon, what was the state of the label? Like, were you already feeling successful? Where were you right before that came out? Well, we were all still working day jobs. So it wasn't that successful in that way. When we started it, it was kind of like, let's see what we can do. And in my mind, I kind of said, okay, I'm going to invest this little amount of money that I have in it. And if I come out of it with five or 10 records on my shelf that I can point to and say, I had something to do with that, then that would be enough. It's been a blessing that obviously each time we've been able to expand on what that would be. Now I'm looking at over 100 records on, on the shelf that we've put out. Dubside of the Moon, when that came out, was our 12th full-length release. Wow. But to that point... We were doing tiny, we were doing reissues. It was exciting because we were working with some of our heroes in the genre. We were putting out some reissues of Sugar Minot and Sister Carol had put a record out with us. The Meditations, people that we got into the business because we loved their music. So there was that excitement. But there was no question that we were, we were hustling on, on the side while we were all working. It took us three years from the conception of Dubside to actually get it done. And we leveraged a bunch of credit cards, et cetera. So it, it was during that time, we probably put out another four or five records from when we thought it up to getting to here. We felt good about what we were doing, but we were still very much in the phase. You know, I would come home from lunch, from work and spend an hour calling Europe, calling like I would go to magazines and see distributors or stores listed and just blind call them and say, hey, we have three seven inches and a CD. You know, can we get some to you in Germany or whatever? And, you know, that sort of hustling. Dubside definitely changed the game for us and opened up a whole world. We had we moved distributors right then and we're still with the same people that we moved that point. And that was a big change at that point. The other thing that Dubside, that coincided with Dubside is that my partner, Michael, who is the producer and arranger and kind of music director for Easy Star, he hit a point where he kind of needed a break after Dubside had hit and was doing well. And he went to Israel for a year 
And my partner, Eric, and I were like, what do we do now? He's the doing a lot of the music. And that empowered us at that point to really start looking at other bands and other projects and not relying as much on the concept of us creating our own music and not just relying on reissues, let's say. So that's when in that period, right after Dubside is when we put out our first record with John Brown's Body, which was, it's, it was a great project to this day is one of my favorite records we put out. And then we did the Tickla album with Victor Axelrod, that Tickla versus Axelrod. Again, these were just really allowed us to creatively grow and it set the stage for while we were still doing our own music and doing the tribute albums, which were getting more and more successful, we also were really starting to cultivate much more of a label with bands that would stick with us. We didn't have the means to tie someone up for a five record deal or something like that. So we really would always do record to record and put the pressure on ourselves to earn that next record. That if we did a good job and we had a good relationship with the artist, then when they're ready to put the next record, they want to work with us again. And for the most part, it's panned out. There are people that have left and tried other things. There are people that left and have come back because they've discovered that they enjoyed working with us. That period was an exciting period and a big transition. Not to mention, that's really when iTunes kicked in as well. Around 2003, 2004, I still remember coming. we were at Midem, which used to be a thing back then. I don't know if you, did you ever go to Midem in Cannes? No, no. Oh, it was, it was. That was like the last hurrah of the record industry in a lot of ways. They were just, you know, from all over the world. But I remember afterwards we were hanging out and Eric showed me his iPod for the first time. And I don't think I went to bed that night. I was just like, oh my God, what is this thing that's amazing? I was thinking about my first iPod just yesterday about, in retrospect, it's probably, it was probably super ugly, but I, that thing was, it was life-changing. Oh, and the Beastie Boys book, I think uh, Ad Rock, has that chapter about the cassette and how he'd have to, you have to make that one choice if you're going to be out all day and you only have jeans, like what cassette? And just talking about how you kids don't know how good you have it, that you can basically bring your entire collection with you in, in your hand. What a game changer. Yeah, so, what a game changer. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. To talk a little bit more about that era, was there ever a time when you thought that Easy Star was going to solely be a reissue label or did you already, did you always have a bigger aspiration? No, it, oh, we always had, because the first music that we were ever doing, we were creating ourselves and then bringing in vocalists to do that. So that was always a part of it. It was that as we kind of got in the scene and got to know people and they started giving us music, we didn't have any intention to be putting out reissues. And honestly, those early ones up through Doveside were some of the only ones we've really done. Since then, everything has pretty much been new music that we're putting out, even when we're working with veteran bands in that way. Like so that was always important to you? Oh, that was what we started with. We felt like that people within reggae at the time were not making good original music with live musicians. And so that's really the impetus to start the label. We never abandoned that. And with other bands in the label, when they're creating and doing their production, we're not precious that it needs to be our productions by any means anymore. Early on, though, it was that was really what the impetus for the label was. It was that idea that we can tap into the scene in New York and the number of talents that was there. And we were surrounded by a lot of talent, starting with Michael, with my partner, and who I mentioned, Tickla, Victor Axelrod, who, you know, was a founding member of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and Antibalis. He's just someone, there was just a lot of people in that scene that were, are super talented. And so we tapped into that at the time. Because you've lived this, uh, hopefully it's not an annoying question, but do you mind taking us inside the anatomy of one of the cover albums? And that could either mean a specific one like the new one. It could mean more generally. But I'm really curious. You have an idea. The team coalesces around it. 
What has to happen to bring that to life? And even from some of the inside baseball point of view, like what are some of the business things you have to navigate? I'd love to know how one of the, how, how a bill becomes a law. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, I wish I had been able to write this up as a, a schoolhouse rock jingle. It would have been much, <laughs> that much easier. That would have been great. <laughs> I'll start by saying, so with Dub Side of the Moon, I had the idea, it's because I just grew up on Dark Side of the Moon. I was walking in New York trying to sell one of our first releases, consign it. You know, I was going to Kim's on St. Mark's and you're like, will you take a box and I'll come back in a month. And I was listening to Dark Side of the Moon and I heard, oh, this could be interesting to, to do in reggae. And by the time I talked to Michael and Eric, we had come up with Dub Side of the Moon as the title in the first day and said, let's do that. So our process each time is that Michael then needs to go and arrange the record. So at times that can take us, it often took us three years between projects because we spend a year playing the game of trying to figure out what record could work. And it gets harder and harder because not every record is going to work. And so we have a whole criteria of kind of the way we think about it. And every party, each of us, that we go to is going to get hit by someone at some point is going to, you know, be like, Oh, have you thought about this record or whatever? And believe me, we've probably thought about just about every record at this point. There are important questions to me in terms of, first of all, is the record iconic enough that it warrants something like this being done? Is the record conceptual and thematic enough that it'll make sense to do as an album? Plenty of people do greatest hits and just do covers like the Fire in the Mountain ones when back in the late 80s of reggae, Grateful Dead. I love the idea of treating, for me, an album is the equivalent of a symphony by Beethoven or something. It's that the way that those songs work together and become one piece of music, even if it's individual cuts, that becomes part of the metric. Then the question is, is there a big enough audience for this record? And is that audience open enough to what we would do with it? With Pink Floyd, we definitely knew there was a huge audience. And we knew that, I mean, at least I knew from looking at myself as a Pink Floyd fan, that there are enough people who are into music that would be open to interpretation. And we also knew the overlap of let's say, smoking pot, which works in both genres. So glad you said it, because it was where I was, what I was thinking, but it, did, well, it didn't you know, seem like a polite thing to say to it's you. It's definitely, definitely part of, of that connection. All those things come into play. The last question is, can it be adapted? Will it sound good? Sometimes we'll look at certain records and it will fit with many of the things, but then ultimately when you start messing around the arrangements, it's just not going to, quite come across either because it's too fast and aggressive and therefore all the songs sound a little weird to be brought down in pace or you know there it just doesn't necessarily work my issue with i think when we did thriller 11 years ago which it's a good record but i think one of those criteria that proves that it, the reason that it's not as successful as some of the other ones is that even though michael jackson has such a huge fan base a huge portion of those people are transitory fans. They're not like Radiohead fans or Pink Floyd fans or Bowie fans where they are obsessed with that artist. A huge portion of Michael Jackson fans just know that they like to dance to Billie Jean and to, you know, and want to be starting something and don't necessarily have that same obsessiveness about his career. And so I think that's a case where there are just far fewer, even though there are more fans, there are far fewer fans of Thriller that would give, that would care. The other issue that I found with that specifically is that because Thriller is already such great dance music, one of the things that makes Dub Side of the Moon and OK Computer so thrilling to me is that you suddenly take something that is much darker, much more rock, and you add this element where you can kind of dance to it. There's a groove to it. With Thriller, we were just changing the groove. The groove already exists and we're changing it. And I think that isn't as, wasn't as compelling, even though, again, I don't want to sell this. That's a good record and we did some great stuff on that. 
But to me, it doesn't. And, and so I'm excited about the Ziggy Stardub because I think it's going back to one of those records like Dark Side of the like OK Computer, that has its own internal mythology, its own kind of sound and character. But we're able to keep some of that drama and some of the things that are there in the music. But it's its own beast now with the with what we've done with it. To answer, though, it takes Michael usually anywhere from a year to two or three years because he's doing other projects, too, et cetera. And we're running a label. So it's sort of him trying to find what's what makes sense. He runs demos past Eric and I. You know, we pass notes back and forth. We decide what's going to work. Then we get to the stage of laying down the tracks and we get those done. Then you start the jigsaw puzzle of figuring out who's going to do the vocals. A lot of times we'll have each song will have three to four people that, you know, our first choice, second choice, third choice, left field choices. We made, you know, and sometimes you can't get who you want and you start playing around and saying, well, we sometimes people you want, like it was interesting with the Radiohead album, there were just lyrics that were particularly too dark or violent for some artists to, who, who didn't want to do it. Wow. You run into kind of things like that and, and we shift. You know, I feel really good about where we ended up with who's on the Ziggy Stardub album. In the end, we had a wish list of people that we would have to see on some of these tracks who would have done great work as well. But we ended up with a fantastic A list of people on it. Now that I hear it finished, it's like, oh, yeah, this person was meant to be doing this track. I have to ask you, you know, vocalist aside, tell me the Alex Lifeson story. Michael just reached out to him and I think they might have shared that he might have been working with someone who was his manager or something, but he basically kind of blindly reached out to him and said, we're doing this. And he said, yes, he was a Bowie fan. And we all know from Spirit of the Radio that they at least liked some reggae back back in the days of their heaviest prog moments. Oh, sure. They they and the police. I mean, the, the Rush is the police through a bizarre lens. Like when you go back and listen to that era, you realize those two bands were in a dialogue. I don't know if the police were paying attention, but Rush were definitely paying attention to the police. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about that because really once Outlandos came out, that's really when moving pictures and stuff started when they went much more stripped down and pop, which I always attributed more because they were not doing well with their, you know, with Bytor and the Snow Dog and their like album length things. So they needed some songs, but you're probably right that they were definitely aware of what was going on with that. The drummers definitely acknowledge it. I don't know if I've ever seen Getty or, or Alex Lifeson acknowledge it, but I've heard, I've seen Stuart Copeland and Neil Peart both reference each other as kind of like the Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney thing. They were watching what each other were doing as bands. That's interesting because, yeah, I wouldn't think that Getty Lee and Sting would really have, you know, Getty Lee seemed always much more to be answering, trying to chase Chris Squire of yes in terms of being being that. But definitely when you talk about Neil Peart and Stuart Copeland and then Andy Summers as a guitarist, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Andy Summers is the unsung hero of that band. When you go, when I go back and listen to some of those, that just the kind of tasteful filling of space that he would do around everything that's going on with the rhythm section and the vocals. It, it's great. You'd think he had four arms. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Where did you record Alex? Did he come to New York or was it all done remotely? Yeah. And, you know, we did a lot more with the guest vocalists where they would record themselves and send tracks in the beauty of modern stuff. At times, some of the sessions that were going on in Jamaica, Michael would be on Zoom or in some way to still be able to direct what he wanted and get what he wanted out of them. With Alex, I think Michael sent him the track and Alex sent it back. And as you would expect, it was like, nailed it. You know, <laughs> like, oh, good. So that's good. how you become a rock and roll Hall of Famer right there. You know, like, yeah. and, and I really like it because it is, it, I was actually listening to it last night. It's just a really tasteful solo that fits really well. There's no real shredding in it. There's no showing off. He was just like feeling it. Super respectful. You don't always think about with Rush. You always lean towards the the heavy superhero type musicianship in that. It's not like Eddie Van Halen on Beat It. It's much more like within context. I mean, that's within context appropriate too, but it's it's just so vibey. I think Eddie, when he did that, and you know, I don't know how much it was 
Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson also pushing to get that out of Eddie. I'm not sure. But I think Eddie was always aware, okay, I'm about to do a song that's going to get massive play. Let me show them what I can do. And we know, you know, rose to the occasion in that case. But I could see that it was also Michael Jackson and Quincy pushing him towards there too, because yeah. they knew what they were doing. The other great guitar, we have one of the other great guitarists of all time doing a solo on another song in this record, which is Vernon Reed is actually on one of the tracks. Yeah. You know, if anyone has a chance to stand up to Alex Lifeson, it's Vernon Reed. I want to make sure he gets some credit for being on there. I'm glad you raised that because he's, he's one of those artists that's very easy to take for granted because he's always there. Yeah. He's always active. In some corners, his profile's gone down, but he's so consistent. Like, he's so freaking consistent. As, a, as sort of an artist citizen and as an artist, like, he's a solid soul. Yes, agreed. Incredible. At what point, or if at any point, do you ever make contact with the artist's camp to either say, here's what we're doing, are you interested? What, how does that work? So it's changed depending on the record. With Dub Side of the Moon, that was the case, the story as it goes, and that we always talk about is that once we were planning to do this, there was basically a gray area as to whether you can. If we were just doing a single cover song, you can force the mechanical and you're covering it. And as long as you're paying your royalties you're, to the writers and the publishers, you're set. There was a level where we're like, does that change if you're doing a whole album? Does the album in some way create a body of work that an artist can have more control over or something and say, no, you can't do the whole. Because when we did that in 03, I don't know of many examples of anyone doing that except for Fish had done their Halloween albums a couple of times at that point, maybe once or twice. I'd be curious if there are any other examples at that point. So there wasn't a lot of legal ground. So we said we should reach out to him. I found a phone number for Pink Floyd Music. I called. I spoke. This is when Steve O'Rourke was still managing the band. I basically spoke to his assistant and said, here's what we're trying to do. Can we do that? Is that all right? Two days later, a fax rolls in. This shows that it's the 90s. We had the fax come in. And it was basically from Steve O'Rourke saying, we've heard what you want to do and we're fine with it. The only thing we couldn't do was we were going to originally do a cover that was going to play off the cover with the beam of light going into the prism and red, gold, and green coming out the other side. Mm -hmm. And the prism was going to be the star of David to, you know, get the kind of Rasta imagery in there. Because Hypnosis actually owned the rights to the artwork, they couldn't grant us the ability to do that. So we had to pivot. But otherwise, it was that easy, which seems crazy in retrospect, because knowing what we know about the rift between Gilmore and Wright and Mason on one side and Waters on the other. And it still astounds me how easy that was. To us, though, what's always been important is that, first of all, we're doing these records as fans of these original records, right? And we know that we're going to have more success with them if we can get out to the actual fan base and get them interested in it. When we went and did Radio Dread, the next record, the Doing the OK Computer, we were kind of foolhardy on that because we were thinking, we got Pink Floyd to do this. So, you know, Radiohead should be no problem because they love, we knew they love reggae and we knew they wanted to support independent music. And so we're in our minds. So we started recording and we had gotten like 20 grand of recording done or something like that when suddenly, and we'd been talking to the publishers the whole time, but all of a sudden we got a note saying the band's decided they don't want you to do this. Okay. Computers are sacred cow. And sorry, you know, be <laughs> in that mode. We were like, oh no, what are we, you know, and we're a small enough label that not being able to release this when we just sank money in it was not an option. So in that case, we went and we quickly, we had vocals done for two songs. We mixed those down. My partner, Eric, and I wrote what we called, it's now it's called the Impassioned Plea. We basically wrote a two-page letter to Radiohead and spent those two songs and tried to explain kind of our intentions. And about a week later or something, we got word back, then basically said, Tom and Johnny say that if, if it's going to sound as good as these two tracks, they're fine with it. Wow. That saved the day in that case. But then you go, the next one we do is the Beatles. And that was first time dealing with Sony ATV. In that case, they made us pay a lot of money 
upfront for the mechanicals, even though we didn't know what we would be selling. Each one is different because we at times have also made changes to, you know, we like to change a word here or there, like God to jaw or something like that. Then technically you have to get approval on some level because we're changing it to reggae. You technically have to get the writer's approval. So we are always trying to go in and get, be in touch with the camp and make sure everyone is down with it. And so far from everything we've heard, everyone in the Bowie estate that, and publishers that have heard it have given us nothing but positive feedback so far. So hopefully that stays the way. And it's super important to us that diehard Bowie fans really discovered this record. And so far, that's what we're seeing as we're talking to people who are, you know, longtime fans in that way. Do you send, you know, a box of the records to the artists? Like, do the artists actually hear it? I know I remember seeing that Johnny Greenwood gave you public feedback, but have other artists said, oh, we love it? Or do they just distance you know, themselves? Yeah, it depends. And we've never really sent out to them like in that way. But Pink Floyd ended up talking over the years about it. Nick Mason, Gilmore. The nicest one is that Claire Torrey, who is the voice on Greg Higgins in the Sky. She yeah. actually came out to a number of gigs and became a friend of ours after and, and was really into what we were doing. Alan Parsons has said nice stuff about it. It was Tom York that when Radio Dread came out, they were on tour and playing in Philly. And a friend of ours who you might know from back in the day at Music Today, Robert Tucker, was involved with them. And he brought the record backstage and they heard Let Down with Toots and then came out on stage and we're talking about how great it was that set the whole tone for the rest of the campaign, because if you've got them interested and saying good stuff, then you can feel like you've done a good thing. It's not easy to cover something and make it its own thing. There are so many great examples of it. It's very easy to make something a cover that brings nothing new to the table. And yeah, you know. in terms of, the not being sort of deterred or being creating a lane outside of like reggae purism, right? respecting the spirit, respecting the lineage, respecting the culture, but not getting hung up in purism. Do you ever have to wrestle with issues of backlash from the audience, especially when you start to bring in like the rock element? Like how does criticism land for you guys and do you get it? So far, we haven't particularly had it. There was a lot of backlash uh, a couple years ago when Soja, the U.S.-based band, won the Grammy for reggae. And a lot of the Jamaican artists were pretty upset about that. You can't ignore the fact that the U.S. reggae scene is huge now and is contributing to the genre. It's hard to be upset with that. And I think Soja was unfairly kind of ripped in that case, because I do think that they're intentions, their love of a reggae and why they started making music is there. It's not, they're not someone that swooped in to just make a buck. The idea of making a buck off reggae is... I'm just going to say, like, you could come up with a better hustle if you were really... Oh, my God. You know, like, let's pick the genre that's less than a percent of the business and that, you know, that Spotify won't even hire someone to be in charge of. Yeah, we'll go exploit those guys. Exactly. That's the way to go. But that's why I think what's always been important to us is what I was talking about in the U.S. and the U.K. scene when young non-Jamaican kids are using the musical form, but they're not trying to sound and speak as if they have that experience because that's what's going to ring hollow. But if an artist is, you know, if the skints are coming in, there's a great band out of England. And what they're talking about is life in East London and what they're seeing and using, but laying down great tracks that are good reggae, then you can't fault that. And it's not appropriation in that way, in my mind, if you're pushing it forward and speaking about your truths, it would be different if they were stepping in and trying to speak Jamaican truths using Jamaican music, because that's, that's as fake as it gets. Yeah, yeah. We're a couple of weeks away from the Bowie record or the, the Easy Star Bowie record hitting the streets. Yeah. What's it look like for you, the ramp up to street date? How do you guys bring this to the world? Will there be shows? Like, what's, what's it look like once uh, Ziggy Startup hits? Well, there's definitely shows, and I'm deep in the middle. We just announced a UK tour, an English tour in August. We're setting up a bunch of US stuff. So there's a lot of both the busy work of setting up 
the shows, then the busy work of all the marketing that goes into those, getting the band back and rehearsing and up to speed, ready to go, the logistics of buying plane tickets and dealing with visas and everything else that goes that way. We do have a 420 show in New York the night before the release. So that's going to be a record release show and hopefully just give us that kind of, it's nice to have that feel after you've been working so hard on something. And then other than that, it's just a lot of all of the constant, the social networking that we need to do, the digital ads that are running, working with the distributor closely on everything that they need to get the record out and selling, doing things like this, doing as many interviews, pushing on the radio end, pushing, you know, it's, it's multifaceted and it's busy. But what's interesting often is you get to, as you get towards that finish line of all the work that you've been putting in for the past couple of years for a release, you kind of are able to breathe a tiny bit as it goes. I mean, we can't because we're really just still putting out, you know, we're still planning everything else for the rest of the year. But when it comes to this project, it's pretty exciting because it's been 11 years since we put one of these records out. And while the band has been touring during that time and doing Dub Side of the Moon shows, things like that, to have a, a new project that's come out as well as it has is really exciting for us and nice to be back in this space and pushing that out because it really is our, you know, this project represents us. Everything we put out on the label represents us because we're curating it, we're choosing, and that's an important part to me of having a label is the decisions that we make of what we want to work with and what we're going to put out. But then this level of putting out something where we're the one to have done it from scratch is that much more of feeling good about it happening. Well, it's a great record and Thank I'm you. looking forward to it being out there and being able to talk to other people about it and hopefully see one of the shows. Yes. But I, I really appreciate you making time to do this, man. Oh, it's been great talking. I enjoyed it for sure. Thank you so much, Lem Oppenheimer and the team at Easy Star Records. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Our producer is Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Cuburn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.